you brought a Bible today, I want you to open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 4 today. We'll get there in just a second. Matthew, chapter 5. We talked about last week that Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount with what has become known as the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes, if you remember, or if you missed last week, are a list of attributes and they're a list of attitudes that citizens of Jesus' new kingdom are going to have in their lives, okay? Citizens of new kingdom, the new kingdom, that's you and that's me. And so, for those of you that are believers here today, um, there's something that's really important for you to remember during this series, and I want everybody to look at me because this is critical. There's something that's really critical for us to remember during this series, and that, that this series is not about us just sort of learning what these Beatitudes are and learning what they mean and saying, oh, oh, that's cool. I didn't, I didn't know they meant that. That's really neat. I learned something new today. But the point of this series really is to evaluate whether you see these Beatitudes being lived out in your life. Because the whole thing that Jesus is doing here is he's not giving us, in the Beatitudes, he's not giving us suggestions for the Christian life. But he's saying that these are the attitudes, these are the attributes that are going to come out of your life. If in fact you are a child of God. So that's the first thing he's doing is he's talking about the attitudes and the attributes that are going to come out of the life of a new kingdom citizen. Now, the other thing he's doing through the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes, is he's showing us the path, as believers, he's showing us the path to true and lasting blessing and satisfaction. You'll notice at the beginning of each one of the Beatitudes, he says the word blessed. You're blessed if you do this. You're blessed if you are this. You'd be blessed if you do that. And that's a word that means blessed or happy. It's the Greek word makarios, which means, at the end of the day, it means fully satisfied. And so when Jesus over and over says blessed, he's making a radically bold claim that the highest form of human blessing and the highest form of human satisfaction is found when you live out and you walk in these beatitudes. And so, as I mentioned last week, church, that's really good news for us. Because every single one of us, every single person in the doors, outside the doors, listening, not listening, every single person on planet earth is in some shape, form, or fashion in the pursuit of happiness, in the pursuit of satisfaction and blessing. So it's good news for us that Jesus says, hey, this is where you find it. And I think one of the, one of the evidences that um, the world is on this pursuit of happiness is in the world's obsession with social media. Now, I'm on uh, the platform that's called Instagram, and I hate it, but I'm on it. And Instagram is like Facebook for young people, and basically what it is is you post a picture, and you put it on there, and then underneath the picture, you write some descriptive words about sort of what you're doing in the picture. And then underneath your descriptive words, you put what's called a hashtag. And if you don't know what a hashtag is, hashtag is just a pound sign, and then it's just a one word or a couple of word things that summarizes the whole picture. And so, for instance, if I was posting a picture of me catching a bass, you know, like uh, out at Lake Danbury or whatever, Dan, you know, the lodge of Danbury that we have at Sagemont, I, ca I caught a bass out there and I was going to post a picture on Instagram, 
I might put a hashtag that says Texas forever or hashtag redneck skills or hashtag I'm a better fisherman than brother Chuck Snyder. Amen, right? <laughs> and it just sort of summarizes everything that's going on in the picture. And so I thought about, <clears throat> I wonder how many times on Instagram the hashtag blessed has been used. And you can actually do a search for it. And so I went to the search part and I put hashtag blessed, put search. And there are currently right now in the United States on Instagram, 123 million posts that use the hashtag blessed. That's a lot of blessing. And so I thought, I wonder what these pictures are. I wonder what these things are that people are saying, hey, I'm blessed because I'm doing them or experiencing them. And I've got, <clears throat> I went to like the first few pictures and and here's the first one. Um, do we have the pictures? Of there? There, there's the first one. This one is a stack of $100 bills that obviously somebody found in, the, in their yard, which is cool. And underneath that, you can't see it, but it says hashtag blessed. And I, I, I agree. If I, I found that stack of $100 bills, I'd be blessed. Now, here's, the, here's the, one of the other pictures I saw in the first couple lines. It's uh, Lamborghinis, and not just one Lamborghini, but uh, I think that's two Lamborghinis there. And um, so this guy's doubly blessed. And so here's the third one. This is my favorite one by far. A, a, a neck tattoo that says blessed. This guy's so blessed that he wanted you to know by getting a tattoo on his neck. Now, I could go on and on and show you all these different pictures, but this is how the world defines blessing. That's how the world defines blessing. And here's the thing. A stack of $100 bills would be great. Amen? be awesome. And a couple of Lamborghinis would be really cool. I like Lamborghinis. And I'm not a big neck tattoo guy, but if you're into that sort of thing, hey, I'm sure they're great. But here's the thing. The problem with all those things is that not one of them can actually make the claim that they can bring you the highest form of human blessing and satisfaction. And even if they could... And even if somehow they could make the claim that, that you did this, experienced this, got this, it could give you the highest form of human satisfaction and blessing, here's a promise, is that that blessing would not last for very long. And so Jesus rolls up on the scene and he preaches this sermon where his whole point is to show you and me exactly where true blessing, true and lasting satisfaction can be found, and he's saying it's when we walk in, and it's when we live out the attributes of Jesus Christ, which are the Beatitudes. Now, last week we looked at the first Beatitude, which is, blessed are the poor in spirit, and I'll talk about that more in just a second, but let's go ahead and jump into the second one today. Let's look at it together. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, let's read the second one. Jesus said, blessed, fully satisfied, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus says that you and I can achieve the highest form of human blessing and satisfaction when we mourn. Now look at me. I don't know about you. But that's a radical statement. Stop and think about that for, for a second. Church, from the world's perspective, from the world's perspective, the phrase that Jesus just made, that you're fully satisfied when you mourn, to the world is an utterly ridiculous claim. Why? Because mourning to the world is the opposite of blessing. 
To the world, mourning is the opposite of happiness. To the world, mourning is something that you are to avoid at all costs. And so what in the world does he mean when he says that? He's, he's making the claim that you and I can experience real and lasting blessedness and happiness and satisfaction when we mourn. So what does he mean by that? What in the world is he saying? What is he claiming? If you're taking notes, there's two meanings to this verse, in my opinion. A lot, of, a lot of theologians sort of camp out on one meaning or the other. But I think it's both, because I've seen both be true in my life. Okay? So um, here's the first one. The first meaning of this beatitude that blessed, fully satisfied, are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I think Jesus is talking about how you and I can apply this in a real physical and emotional sense when you and I go through real physical and emotional mourning. I think he's talking about that there's a comfort that you and I can experience in Christ that the world cannot experience apart from Christ. And, um, and so I, as an example, let me, let me show you this. Let's talk about how a Christian can respond and experience the death of a loved one as opposed to how the world responds to and experiences the death of a loved one. Sagemont, if you've ever had someone near to you or close to you die, you know that it's one of the single most gut-riching experiences that you'll ever walk through. You know, when someone that you love, that you care about, and that you're close to dies, passes away, you experience this sort of feeling of disgusting, nauseous despair. It's really hard to put into words. And um, I've always wondered, like, why is that? Like, what, what causes? There's no feeling like it in the world when you lose a loved one. I had a friend, a pastor friend of mine, explain where that, why, why death produces those horrible, disgusting feelings in us. He said this. He said, the reason we feel those things when someone dies is because in one sense we were never meant to experience it. God did not create us to experience death. He created us from the beginning to live forever. And so it was only when sin entered into the picture that death entered into the picture. And so while the old saying goes that death is just a natural part of life, the reality is, is that death is actually one of the most unnatural things you will ever experience. Because God did not create you to die. He created you to live with him forever. And yet the claim of the Bible, the claim of the Scripture, the claim of Jesus for those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, what he's saying here is that there is a blessing and there is a comfort that is available to you even when you walk through something as horrible as death. And so I want you to turn with me real quick to 1 Corinthians 15, 54. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. And as you turn there... I want you to watch how the Apostle Paul describes how for the believer, for the child of God, for you and me who have trusted in Christ, how even something as horrible as death can produce blessing. It's a powerful verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Paul's speaking about the death of a believer. Paul says, when the perishable 
puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immorality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. In verse 55, Paul starts talking smack to death. He says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And everybody look at me here because I think this is what this verse is sort of teaching us. That for people who have not had their sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus, make no mistake, there is a sting in their death. For those that have never trusted in Christ and have their sins forgiven and made brand new by the blood of Jesus, there is no victory in their death because their death has not been swallowed up by the victory of the cross. And so when death comes in their life, then mourning comes, there can be no comfort for them because there's no victory found in Jesus. But Paul is saying that for you and I, it's a different story. For you and I, it's a different outcome. He's saying for the believer at the moment of your death, then you put off the perishable and you put on the imperishable. He's saying at the moment of your death, you put off the mortal. He's saying you're no longer mortal, but you become immortal. He's saying at the moment of your death and the moment you breathe your last breath, he's saying in that moment, your death is swallowed up in the victory of the cross. And so the believer, we have the ability to look death in the face and say, oh, death, where is your sting? As a believer, we can look death in the face and say, oh, death, where is your victory? Because my Savior, Jesus Christ, has defeated you at the cross and the resurrection. And I don't know about you, but to me, that's really comforting. That even something as horrible as death as believers we can look straight at it and say, you've lost. And we've won because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the first meaning of the verse. What that's saying to us today, and I want you to hear me, because there's a lot of grieving and there's a lot of mourning going on in our country. There's a lot of folks in our church right now that are grieving and mourning. But this is the promise of the Scripture. I don't care what you're going through. I don't care what you've been through. I don't care what you're going to go through. There is a comfort that is available to you that was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ that the world can absolutely never experience. And that is good news for us today. In Matthew 5, 4, Jesus said, Blessed, fully satisfied are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, second meaning of the verse here. Let's take a look at the second meaning here. This one is a little bit harder to swallow. This is a little bit harder to live out. So listen carefully here. To understand the second meaning of the verse, and I need you to catch this. Everybody listen to this. This is really critical for the rest of the series. To understand the second sort of meaning of this verse, you've got to understand that The Beatitudes are like a chain. 
They're, they're like a chain where one link is connected to another. In other words, the first beatitude will result in the second one. And the second one will result in the third one. And so on and so forth. So y'all remember what the first beatitude was. It was, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, without re-preaching the sermon, what Jesus said there is, and hear this, he says, blessed are those who realize that because of their sin, they're completely spiritually impoverished and can do absolutely nothing apart from Jesus. He's in blessed are those who realize that because of their sin, they're totally and completely spiritually impoverished. And so when you realize that spiritual poverty, that you do nothing in, your, in and of yourself, you will turn to Jesus, and he will save you, and through that, he will give you the kingdom of heaven. Now, realizing that the Beatitudes are a chain. You got blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the next thing Jesus says is blessed are those who mourn. Those are not separated. They're actually together. And so most biblical scholars believe in light of the first beatitude where he's saying, hey, you realize your sin causes your spiritual poverty, that when Jesus is talking about mourning here next, he's specifically talking about mourning over your sin. He's talking about mourning over your sin. In other words, when a person realizes their absolute spiritual poverty because of their sin, that's poor in spirit, then, then the inevitable result where the realization of that spiritual poverty and that Jesus saved them despite that spiritual poverty will produce a mourning over the sin in their life. And so let's turn uh, quickly to 2 Corinthians 7, 9. 2 Corinthians 7, 9, if you don't want to turn there, you can just listen because Paul's going to show us how a believer is to respond to sin when it pops up into their life. 2 Corinthians 7, 9. Paul says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved. He said, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Now listen carefully to verse 10. He said, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And so Paul says when you and I sin, that there are one of two ways that you're going to respond to that sin. When sin pops up in your life, he says, one, you're going to respond with a, a godly grief or a godly sorrow. He says, or when you sin, you're going to respond with a worldly grief or a worldly sorrow. And let's talk about the difference between the two because they're critical. All right? Let's talk about, um, let's talk about worldly sorrow for a second. What does that look like? Well, guys, let's talk to you. Let's say, for instance, that uh, you're married and something happens and you get in an argument with your wife. And during the argument with your sweet wife, you get really angry, and you start to yell. And you yell at her, and during the process of yelling at her, you, um, you say some really hurtful things, okay? You send in your anger. And your wife responds, and she decides that she's not going to talk to you for a while. She decides that um, she's actually not going to cook you dinner that night. And she looks at you and says, oh, by the way, you're sleeping on the couch tonight. And it sort of hits you, man, I messed up. I yelled at my wife. 
and she is mad at me, and she's not cooking dinner for me, and I'm sleeping on the couch tonight, and so it, it, it hits you, and because of that, this sort of sorrow sets in. The sorrow sets in, but listen carefully. This grief has more to do with the consequences of your sin than the actual sin itself. In other words, you're sorrowful because your wife's not talking to you. You're sorrowful because you're sleeping on the couch. You're sorrowful because of what happened to you because of your sin. Church, that is worldly grief. That's worldly sorrow. You're sorrowful over the consequences, not the sin itself. But Paul says there's another kind of sorrow over your sin, and that's godly sorrow or godly grief. And that's, let's go use the same analogy. You get into an argument with your wife, you yell at her, you say some hurtful things, and, 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 and she says, I, I'm, I'm not cooking dinner for you, you're sleeping on the couch, I'm not talking to you for a while, and grief sets in, but your grief has less to do, hear this, it has less to do with the consequences of your sin and it has everything to do with the fact that you did not reflect the character and nature of Jesus to your wife. It hits you that you hurt your sweet bride. It hits you that you did not love your wife like Christ loved the church. And so you grieve. You see the difference between the two. Worldly sorrow is when you, you grieve over the consequences of your sin, but godly sorrow is when you grieve because you sinned against your wife and against the Lord. Now watch again what Paul says are the results of when we have godly mourning over our sin, which is when we realize we've sinned against the Lord and against the person we've sinned against. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, he says, Godly grief produces a repentance. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so the scripture is saying that when you grieve, when you don't rather, grieve the consequences of your sin, but you grieve the sin itself, that is godly sorrow. Listen, this is the critical. That will, godly sorrow will lead you to repent. It'll lead you to turn from your sin. And then when you turn from your sin, that leads to salvation without regret, which is an important phrase. And so what Jesus is saying is this, in the first two Beatitudes, he's saying that when you realize your poverty of spirit because of your sin, that you're going to respond by mourning your sin. And when he sees you realize your spiritual poverty, and when he sees you mourning your sin, what Jesus is saying is that when he sees that godly morning, Jesus will step into the picture and he will comfort you. Now, I think that brings us to a really important question. What does godly mourning over our sin actually look like? Because that's critical. Jesus is saying we're going to do it. He's saying there's comfort for us when we do it. So what does that look like? What does godly mourning actually look like? Does it mean that, does godly mourning over our sin mean that we sort of feel bad about it? 
when sin comes into your life and, 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 you, and, and you respond with a godly mourning over that sin, does that mean that your sin sort of bothers you? When you sin, does godly mourning mean that you sort of think, man, I shouldn't have done that. I need to do better next time. That's something I need to work on in my life. To understand what Jesus is saying when he is calling us to mourn our sin, you have to look at the actual word mourn in the text. Because in that word that he uses in the original language in the Greek, it's very specific about what the mourning is supposed to look like in your life and mine. Look at the verse one more time, Matthew 5, 4. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That word mourn and how he uses it is critical to understanding what it looks like for you and me. Here's what I mean. There's nine different words in the New Testament for mourning. Nine different words for mourning. And the word that Jesus uses for mourning is the Greek word pantheo. The specific Greek word he uses is the Greek word pantheo. Church, of all the words in the New Testament for mourning, that is by far and away the strongest use of the word. Hands down, that's the strongest use of the word. It represents sort of the deepest, most heartfelt sorrow that a human being can experience. Now, everybody check this out. Pantheo mourning was almost always used to describe the death of a loved one. That's how intense of a word it is. Jesus said, blessed are those who pantheo, for they will be comforted. Now, I've lost several loved ones in my life. And hands down, the most horrible picture of grief that I've ever seen in my life personally was when my mom lost her sister. And they were, just, they were not just sisters, but they were identical twins. They were born in 1944, and they were ridiculously close. True story, they wore the exact same outfit every single day of their lives till college. True story. The first time that they were, true story, they were ever apart. They were ever apart. The first time they were ever separated was on my Aunt Sharon's wedding night. And my Uncle Mike tells a story about that night. He was sitting around waiting to get to do what married couples do on their wedding night. But he had to wait because my Aunt Sharon was crying her eyes out because she was separated for the first time since conception from my mother. And in 1999, my Aunt Sharon was killed in a car accident. I got the call from my uncle. I happened to be at my sister's house, and, and it just so happened that my mom was on the way to my sister's house where I was. This was before cell phones, and so it hit me. I'm going to have to tell my mom that her twin's dead. She walks in the door. I said, Mom, sit down. She could tell by the look on my face that something was wrong. So she sat down. I didn't know how to say it, so I just said it. I said, Mom, Aunt Sharon was killed in a car accident. And when I said those words, there was a sound that came out of my mother's mouth that I have never heard come out of anybody, any human being, before that day or since. It was this low, guttural wail that just sort of involuntarily came out of her. 
she collapsed into my father's arms and started screaming, Johnny. My dad's name is Johnny. I've never heard him called Johnny in his life. She called him John. Everyone called him John. She is screaming at the top of her lungs, Johnny, 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 Johnny. No, 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 no. And I don't remember much after that. That kind of grief is called pentheo. And that is the word that Jesus uses here. What Jesus just said, church, is blessed, fully satisfied are those who mourn their sin the way that you would mourn the death of a loved one. For you will be comforted. He's saying, church, that our sin shouldn't bother us. He's saying that our sin shouldn't trouble us. He's teaching us that our sin should not annoy us, that our sin shouldn't be something that we just need to work on. But he's saying that when sin enters your life, when you fall short of the glory of God, that it ought to produce in you a low, guttural wail of grief like nothing else in this world but death. And so if you're a believer here today, I want to ask you a really important question. How are you responding to the sin in your life? When you sin, does it, produce, does it produce worldly sorrow, which is a mild annoyance over the consequences of your sin? Or when you sin, do you mourn? Some of you are probably here and you're like, Pastor Matt, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a Christian, but I don't grieve like that over my sin. Pastor Matt, I'm a, I'm a believer, but I don't, I don't know if I've ever mourned my sin the way that I would mourn the death of a loved one. If that's you today, again, I want to remind you one last time that the Beatitudes are not suggestions. But the Beatitudes are things that Jesus is saying that are going to come out of your life. If you're really a believer, and so here's the thing. If there's never been a time in your life where you've mourned your sin the way that Jesus is talking about here, then this is what I want you to do today. I want you to turn your eyes to the cross. Turn your eyes to the cross. Actually do it. Because when when you look at the cross and you see Jesus there, you're going to see something. You're going to see the only man that's ever lived has never sinned. You're going to see the only man that's ever lived that didn't deserve the cross. And when you look to the cross, you're going to see him stripped naked. When you look to the cross, you're going to see him tortured, and you're going to see him beaten. When you actually look to the cross, you're going to see the nails driven through his hands and his feet. You're going to see the crown of thorns pressed into his brow. When you look to the cross, you're going to see him crying out in agony. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when you look to the cross, you're going to see him breathe his last. Cry, it is finished, and die. And if you'll actually do that, something's going to hit you. 
that it was my sin that put him there. If you look to the cross, it will hit you that he went through all that to pay for my sin. And if you'll do that, that he's hanging on that cross because of your sin, I promise you something, you'll grieve. And when you grieve, and you pour out that grief at the foot of the cross, that the promise of the infallible Holy Spirit-inspired word of God is that he will in turn pour out his comfort over you. And it's the kind of comfort that can only come on the other side of Pentheo morning. I'm going to end today with a little bit of application. We'll be done. There's some of you here today that have a pattern of sin in your life that you can't seem to shake. You have a sin, maybe a couple, and you're fighting it, but it keeps popping back up. Listen carefully. If that's you, have you ever thought about the fact that the reason that you have a continuing pattern of sin in your life that you can't seem to shake might be because you feel bad about your sin, but you've never mourned it? Jesus said there's a comfort that comes, there's a repentance that comes through godly mourning. If that's you today, that you've got this repeated pattern of sin, it's entirely possible that you feel bad about it, but you've never mourned it. If that's you, stop, take a look at the cross, and when you do, it will hit you like a ton of bricks, that it was your sin that put him there, and you will grieve. And when you begin to grieve, when you respond in godly sorrow, you will repent. And here's the thing. And the last thing you'll ever want to do, when it really hits you that your sin put him there, the last thing you'll ever want to do is continue in a sin that put him on the cross. And so for others of you, maybe you don't have a pattern of sin in your life, but you carry around a lot of guilt from a former sin. I've struggled with that. You don't have a recurring pattern of sin, but there's some guilt and there's some shame over your past sin. And here's the thing. You, you did that thing in the past, and you've asked for forgiveness, but you still walk around with a sort of nagging sense of guilt that you can't seem to shake. I want to tell you why that happens. It hit me. Why does that happen? We've asked for forgiveness, but this guilt sort of hangs on to us. Why is that happening? I think this is why it happens. This was mind-blowing for me when it hit me. I believe that happens because the average Christian in America wants to go immediately from sinning to forgiveness, but we bypass the morning. Most of us are so quick to stand at the foot of the cross and cry thankful tears for our forgiveness, but we can't be so quick to cry thankful tears of forgiveness that we don't first cry grieving tears of mourning. Jesus is saying here that yes, there is forgiveness found at the foot of the cross, but there is also comfort. There's comfort found at the foot of the cross, but it only comes when we mourn the sin that put him there. He said, blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. 
I'll end with this. You know, it, it hit me when I was preparing for this sermon. That this actually makes all the sense in the world. That Jesus allows us to mourn our sin. That Jesus wants us to go through that step of mourning our sin. It actually makes all the sense in the world. And here's what hit me. I have three children. And when my kids sin, I'm telling you, I can tell the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Can't you? I can tell. When they, when they mess up, when they sin, I can tell when they're more concerned about the consequences of the sin than they are the actual sin itself. When they have like actual, genuine, godly sorrow over their sin. But here's the thing, church. Here's what I've discovered. Is I don't care what they've done. I don't care what they've done. When I see them grieving, not the consequences of their sin, but when I see them grieving the sin itself, when I don't see them grieving the consequences of their sin, but I see them grieving the fact that they sinned against the Lord, I'm telling you right then, I don't want to punish them. I don't even want to discipline them. When I see in their life actual, genuine, godly sorrow, the only thing in the world I want to do is rush to them and wrap my arms around them and comfort them. Because I know that God is already at work on their heart. And if that's the way that I feel as an earthly father, how much more does your heavenly father feel that way? about you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted.